Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest. If you listen to my show often, you'll recognize his name. His name is Mark Shaw. I had him just a couple weeks ago to talk about his outstanding book. I highly recommend this book about Mike Tyson trial, the Mike Tyson trial. Title of that was Down for the Count, The Shocking Truth Behind the Mike Tyson Rape Trial. It was published in 1993. It stands the test of time. He was on site, knew a lot of the actors there. And uh, very detailed, lawyerly, scholarly approach looking at that case. So I appreciate that. Sometimes the things get a little too celebritized, hyperbolic or something like that. But uh, I recommend that book. But I've been wanting to talk to him about this other character. I grew up in San Francisco part of the time as I was growing up in, in the Bay Area and always heard his name. His name is Melvin Belli. So uh, this, some people may not know his name on a nationwide basis. Uh, he's kind of an older character, but he was definitely a kind of a, a celebrity of, a, of his own type of lawyer, legal celebrity when I was growing up. And I used to pass by his office right there. It was in between the financial district and North Beach. And you just hear rumors of people talk about him. He's in the newspapers back before the internet. But uh, uh, so I'm delighted to have him. And he ties into a lot of very fascinating things that happened in American history. For example, the Jack Ruby trial, which we will talk about. But Mark Shaw wrote this book. Title, full title is Melvin Belli, King of the Courtroom. And this guy was really a character, quite something else. So Mark Shaw, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, William. You know, I, so, I just want to quickly say the reason for this book, uh, we'll talk about, I knew Melvin Belli in the 80s. But uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book is because Mr. Belli, and you can find these books, he wrote two autobiographies, okay? So when I was thinking about uh, writing a book about him in 1990, he died in 1996, I, I looked at them, and there were two autobiographies, and if you read them, uh, the facts conflicted. Interesting. <laughs> uh, both books that he had, and, and, and that, that was Belli. He was bigger than life and all of that. And so, uh, yeah, he's, he, he, he's a uh, king of the courtroom is exactly what, what I think uh, uh, he should be known for because uh, uh, he was the king back then uh, in, the, in the you know 40s, 50s, and 60s, and on through then to when he died in 1996. But the question that's always been asked to me as I uh, went on to write, what, five books after this one about uh, touching on the JFK assassination and the uh, life and times and deaths of Marilyn Monroe and Dorothy Kilgallen and all of that was, how in the world did Melvin Belli become Jack Ruby's lawyer? So if we, if I, I investigated that and you can investigate my investigation today because it, all, it goes back all the way to about 1984. Wow. So can you kind of, I mean, that's always the question, like he's such a huge character, but how does this guy from California end up in Texas defending a guy who killed the so-called assassin of the president? Well, it's it's a, a circuitous route, that's for sure. But we'll we'll see. There was a definite link. I would not have been able to write those five books that I just mentioned. Uh, the first one was the Poison Patriarch about uh, how the uh, Kennedy family, uh, Joe Kennedy, they fixed the 1960 election. People can read that. Then I uh, learned about uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, the, the most credible um, reporter about the uh, Jack uh, the uh, JFK assassination. Uh, celebrated journalist, the most powerful female voice in America back then, wrote the best-selling The Reporter Who Knew Too Much. 
Next up was denial of justice, which was all about the Jack Ruby trial and the Ruby trial transcripts and more about Dorothy Kilgallen. Then collateral damage, uh, which connected the deaths of JFK, uh, Marilyn and Dorothy for the first time. And then most recently fighting for justice, which talks about the corruption at the Warren Commission and all of that. But the, the, the key here is that it wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't known Melvin Belli. In 1984, uh, I think you know, I'm a former criminal defense lawyer, mostly high profile murder cases in the 1970s. And uh, uh, at one particular point, uh, I, I tried a case with F. Lee Bailey, who was a, as famous a lawyer as Melvin Belli was at the time. And uh, then I, I practiced a criminal defense lawyer for about uh, four or five years. I learned how to write, as a matter of fact, by talking to juries and, uh, and not with any formal training. But uh, after that, I gave up the practice of law, uh, ended up being a legal correspondent for Good Morning America. Uh, that's where I ended up uh, working on the, on the, uh, on the uh, uh, Mike Tyson trial, which we talked about the last time. I went on then to work for CBS, uh, uh, the Disney Channel, all kinds of different uh, programs. But in 1984, I was an entertainment lawyer, basically, doing a little criminal work in the, in the city of San Francisco. I lived over in the, in the uh, Cow Palace uh, area of the city uh, and then down the marina and all of that. But a woman that I knew, and you'll get a kick out of this because it is absolutely true, a woman that I met at that time looked just exactly like Mer Marilyn Monroe. Uh, she, of course, wasn't as beautiful as Marilyn or anything, but she and I struck up a friendship and a romance at that particular time. She was just great. I can't remember her name now, but she worked in Melvin Belli's office. And you mentioned it was downtown San Francisco on Montgomery uh, Street. And uh, that's where, uh, you know, that was Melvin Belli's uh, lair is he had his office there and all of that. And she said, you know, Mark, um, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Belli. And I said, well, that would be a, a pleasure. And so we had a lunch down in the uh, in, in uh, Little Italy, that area down there. And I got to know him a little bit. And then, you know, I didn't really think about him too much because uh, I'd been away from San Francisco and all of that. But I started to do a little research and I found that he was, you know, such a gigantic name in the in the uh, legal profession at that time. And I wrote them down. There were the great lawyers across the country. Uh, who, who, you know, you said one name, you said a name and you knew who they were. F. Lee Bailey, Roy Cohn, Richard Racehorse, Racehorse Haynes in, in, uh, in Texas, who gave me a wonderful blurb for this book. Jerry Spence in, uh, in uh, it's not Idaho, I think it's Montana. 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 And he gave me a wonderful blurb for this book. Uh, you had Roy Black in, in Florida who tried the William Kennedy Smith uh, rape trial. Edward Bennett Williams who was a Washington DC uh, king of the courtroom. Uh, you had all those names like that. You don't have that anymore today. We don't have those names that we recognize. So Belli was one of them for sure. So I talked to this Marilyn Monroe lookalike and I said, you know, I'd be interested if Mr. Belli wanted to do some sort of a television, some television spots that maybe could be on the local news each night or something like that. And she said, well, I'll bet he would, he loves he was a publicity hound. Here's an example that you'll love. You'll love. I don't want to forget this. When Belli went to Las Vegas all the time, and, and we'll talk about that because that's where he connected with the mobsters. He's kind of a mob wannabe, William. But when he went into the hotels, the first thing he would do is give a, bell, a bellhop, oh, $25, $30 at the time probably, and say, 
you know, go to the, go to the uh, phone, go, go out and, and start saying, um, Melvin Belli, Melvin Belli, you have a phone call. Melvin Belli, you have a phone call. So that everybody would know that he was there. That's the kind of guy he was, publicity on. So I came up with a series of about, I think there were one and a half to two minute segments called The World According to Melvin Belli. I think we changed the name at one time, Belli on the Law, whatever it was. Anyway, we filmed about 25 of those at his office. And I don't know if you were ever able to look down in his office, but it was an amazing place. Um, he, he, he had it so that when with the window outside, you had to look down into the office. He had this huge desk uh, there and sat behind it. One of the things he did, by the way, to intimidate anybody that came in to talk to him, the, the, the desk was elevated. So he would look down on whoever was talking to him. Oh, he's quite a character. And he would always thrust his, his uh, hand forward and you had to pay attention because he was gonna tell you something important that way. So um, anyway, we filmed those in his office. The, right beside him was a skeleton that was on a, uh, on a, on a hung on a, a little place, and, and it was, it was Elmer. And Elmer was the skeleton that Mr. Belli took into the courtroom. Uh, every lawyer, personal injury lawyer, who has ever lived since then owes him a debt of gratitude. Belli was known as the king of torts, Life Magazine. Uh, Don hit that, that label on him because he was the first one to sue all of the big companies. Uh, Coca, I wrote them down, Coca-Cola, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies. He sued the airlines. I mean, he sued everybody. <laughs> he didn't leave anybody out. It didn't matter who it was. Belli was on the prowl. And when, when he filed a suit, the other side knew they were in for a hell of a battle. Because he so wasn't anyway, afraid of wasn't afraid to go to court. So that's awesome. Oh, no, no. And that's something that I gained a reputation of doing. That's what you have to do. If, you, if you're going to, if you're going to concede in the criminal, and if you, if everybody knows you're going to plea bargain your cases, you're not going to get any respect. And, 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 and you've got to let them know you're going to try the cases. And I was proud of the reputation that I had. And he had that. So what he did is. Not all lawyers do. Sorry to interrupt, Mark, but not all lawyers have that skill. They don't have the oratorical skills. They don't have the ability to emotional, emotionally connect with people. There's some there the people who can do these court trials. It's very high stress too, so they're kind of a cut apart. They have a different calling within the law as opposed to somebody who does wills and trusts or uh, oh. contract law or something like that. Yeah. Or is what we call a fixer who wants to go ahead, avoid anything doing with the courtroom. I mentioned in the um, Mike Tyson case, he had a local counsel named Jim Voiles. He was not a trial lawyer. Uh, the, the main lawyer for Mike Tyson was not a trial lawyer in the area that he needed to defend Tyson. They're scared of the courtroom. And unfortunately, clients don't know that. And, right. and it really can cause a lot of problems that way. You have to be able to, uh, the other side has to know you're going to go to bat. And, yeah, you're and not bluffing. They have to know that you're not a bluffer or there's, you're right. going to go the distance. Yeah, sorry. And in Belli's case, he settled a lot of cases because they knew would, he would go to a uh, go to bat. And so he, he represented all of these, uh, uh, you know, cases again, you know, some of them were, you know, smaller cases where somebody got hurt by being hit by a bus or something like that. But he went after the big cases, uh, the Exxon Valdez, um, uh, you know, poisoning Excellent. of the water. I mean, uh, all those kind of cases were Belli at his best. And so we, we made these, uh, these, uh, 
wonderful segments. And we found, uh, I think it was uh, KRON in San Francisco. You may, maybe remember Cron, the sure. television station, Channel 4. And they used them on the uh, uh, on those. Uh, basically, they were kind of attached to newscasts. Uh, now it's uh, Mel the world according to Melvin Belli, and he would come on there. He just loved those things, told everybody about, had a big party. Uh, you know, on, on his roof, he had a, uh, a cannon, a fake kind of a cannon. Every time he won a big verdict, he would sound that cannon, you know, and everybody knew what had happened. He used that uh, to let people know that he was on television because he loved the camera and all of that. Uh, and the Jolly Rogers, so he would raise the pirate Rogers, flag. That's too. what it was called, exactly. Yeah. You'll get a kick out of this because uh, I actually, I guess it's a badge of honor. I was actually uh, sued by Melvin Belli. Hmm. Once those uh, segments were on television, they did pretty well. We had a distributor up in uh, in uh, uh, Mill Valley, uh, north of San Francisco, who distributed them. They were on a few stations across the country. And when that was all over, um, you know, we didn't make much money on them or anything. But Belli thought we did. So I had moved to Los Angeles by that time opened the door to an apartment down there, and here was somebody serving me with the papers, Melvin Belli versus Mark Shaw. <laughs> he was going after me. I'll tell you what, I got in my car and drove up to San Francisco, raced into his office, and, even though they didn't want me to go in, and I gave him holy hell. And I said, how could you do this? You know, I made this possible and everything. And, you know, I wasn't one to back down to somebody like that. And he said, Here's what he said exactly. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Now, do you want to go to the Major League Baseball All-Star Game Sunday? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go with you, but you better, you know, dismiss that lawsuit. So he did. He picked me up in his Rolls Royce. It was gold, convertible. Uh, he had one of his dogs in there. His dogs were uh, always in the newspapers and everything. Well done, rump roast, one, two, three, and four. And so he had the dog in the back seat, smelled up the, the, the Bentley and everything, but that was okay. And we went to the All-Star game at Candlestick Park, which was still here then. And uh, the fog was rolling in and all of that. And we sat in the right field stands on the first in the first row there. And I'll never forget it. He was like a rock star. I mean, people just, you know, galloping down the, the, the steps to get his autograph. I mean, he was a rock star, basically. So we sat there and we had a great time. Another lawsuit, by the way, that he filed was against the Giants because at one point he had season tickets, William, and uh, when he when they, they were supposed to have heated cushions on the seat, and when he got there, the, 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 the uh, heated cushion didn't uh, didn't work, and so he went ahead and sued them. And when he won in court, he attached the body of Willie Mays, who was a Giants outfielder and star at that time. I mean, he was a hell of a character and everything, but that's how I met him. That's how I was there. The other thing that I learned about him at the time that I paid no attention to was that he was Jack Ruby's lawyer and also that he was a real wannabe mafioso. He loved to say that he was part of the San Mateo um, city uh, mafia. And he would go to Las Vegas and hang out with those guys and everything. He just loved that. And, and, and he won that reputation as, as we'll see uh, that led me to learning more about how Belli became uh, Jack Ruby's lawyer. But he was the he was the real deal. Just just think about this list of clients that I that I uh, had to go back and look in the book and, and see. By the way, this book is is out of print, but there are paperback editions on and Amazon that can can take a look. And if you want to read about him, I guarantee you you'll enjoy it. 
I got the Kindle. Flynn. I got the Kindle version, so that's available oh, on Amazon. Errol Flynn, uh, the the famous uh, motion picture actor. Tammy Faye Baker, uh, you, you know the uh, the Christian woman who got in all sorts of trouble. Martha Mitchell, for God's sakes. John Mitchell, the Attorney General's wife, who was such a blabbermouth. Uh, the Rolling Stones. Muhammad Ali, Lana Turner, Lenny Bruce. He represented Lenny Bruce in her in his, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, the case in New York City where they filed charges against him for his nasty, uh, for his nasty mouth using the F word all the time and everything. In fact, there's a connection there with Dorothy Kilgallen because she was a witness for Lenny Bruce in New York City. Uh, Mae West, uh, Evil Knievel, the famous uh, motorcyclist. And, and a case that I didn't even know about, and I think I let you know about, there was a case in just after the assassination, uh, Bernard Garrett, he represented him in, uh, in, a, in a lawsuit. Bernard Garrett, if you're gonna to go to Apple TV, you'll see a film called The Banker. It has, um, uh, who's the, the famous actor in there? Uh, Samuel L. Jackson is in it. And it's fascinating because uh, in about, in the 1960s, uh, there were no real black uh, owners of property, including office buildings in downtown Los Angeles. And these two black uh, men uh, went ahead and invested in the tallest building down there. They used a white intermediary so nobody would know they were black. They accumulated all kinds of wealth with all of these, uh, these buildings. And then uh, Bernard Garrett, who was from Texas, moved back to Texas and tried to th the same thing down there with buying property and not letting anybody know that uh, uh, there were two, uh, two uh, African-American owners uh, of the three of those homes and apartment buildings and everything else like that. And lo and behold, uh, when I, after I watched the series, uh, yeah, the, seri uh, the, the film on, on Apple TV, I found out that none other than Melvin Belli represented Bernard Garrett in 1963 because Garrett was charged with fraud both in LA, but mostly in Texas, uh, by using uh, a front man and not letting anybody know uh, that he had, had done so. Uh, he finally ended up uh, uh, pleading guilty. This is Melvin Belli uh, at, at, in, in uh, you know, the 1963 or four case. He's at the uh, uh, McClellan hearings in Washington, DC, defending Bernard Garrett. Unfortunately, Garrett uh, pled guilty to fraud and spent time in prison. Uh, only to later on become a land baron in the Bahamas. So it's a great story. And, and you've come up with the article. There's many of those on the internet. But that was Belli at his best. And while I have ridiculed him for what he did in the, in the uh, Jack Ruby case over and over, uh, what he did in this particular case and many others, he was always looking out for the little guy. In fact, you may know he was born in Sonora, which is not too far from uh, San Francisco. And I have a gentleman who has gotten really interested in Melvin Belli, and he visits Belli's uh, uh, grave over in Sonora. I've been there too. There's a photograph I have in one of the books, maybe it's this one, uh, of my standing there where Belli was. Son of a banker, uh, but he rose up through the, uh, the uh, ranks of the, of the uh, lawyers in San Francisco, uh, and finally then found his niche uh, in, in, the, uh, in the area where he was, uh, basically suing everybody and their brother uh, every day of the week. He also, uh, you may remember the- uh, uh, He worked Columbine. death penalty case, cases. He worked the uh, 
thankless job doing San Quentin death penalty cases. Oh that's yes, that's right. Happened. He did, great. Thank you. You're 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 right. Exactly. He did some of those, but he never really tried anything in court. He basically just went ahead and, and I think was able to present that evidence to appeals courts and things like that and do something with it. Herb Cohen, by the way, you'll know that name and many of your listeners who are up in age like me will do that. He had a, a very famous column in the San Francisco Chronicle. I can't remember the name of it, but it was really, uh, uh, you know, a famous column. And uh, Belli was in there a lot, but not enough. <laughs> he just wanted to be in there every day. And so he and Cohen went round and round. At one, at one point, he finally sued Herb Cohen, not giving him enough publicity. So uh, he was quite a cracker jack, cracker jack guy. There's, there's, there it is. There's the, uh, and, and on his tombstone, look what it says, the king of torts. So I met Belli in 84, and then, you know, after he sued me, I was down in L.A., and uh, we didn't have much uh, interaction. The, the blonde that uh, had worked for him and I uh, didn't have much to uh, contact anymore. Oh, oh, yes, we better remember and mention one of his most famous cases, the Zodiac case. Right. The Zodiac case, uh, for people who don't know, there were, uh, what, uh, uh, William, uh, Two mysterious deaths, I believe, and then more in San Francisco. The first two were a couple of lovers just north of San Francisco in a park. And the Zodiac uh, began sending uh, out uh, communiques, uh, mysterious communiques, talking about what he did. He sent them to the police. He sent them to the radio and television uh, stations. Uh, it became a huge mystery as to who uh the zodiac killer was is that that's what they called him finally there was a point where he decided to uh yes okay there you go that's one of them the zodiac speaking i wish you a happy christmas this is the guy that's killing everybody <laughs> right please help me i want to reach out i i need to do this i need to do that please help me and so on and so forth so who did he pick to set up his um going ahead and surrendering himself well melvin belli uh, who again was the was the big deal there, the big cheese. So he gets a hold of Belli, and he says, "Look, uh, I want you to go on a television station. I believe this one was the ABC affiliate, and I will call into that station. It was a very popular morning program." So he calls in, and Belli's there, and he asks to speak to Belli, and Belli talks to him, and everything else like that. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, surrender myself, and I believe, as I recall. Uh, people can correct me if I'm wrong, but he set up a place where he would surrender. So, so Belli went ahead and, and made arrangements, I think, with the police. Uh, there wouldn't be any police around or there would be one policeman, I think. Reminded me, by the way, of a criminal case that I had where uh, a guy who had killed a uh, Indianapolis, Indiana a policeman. He was black. The policeman was white. A lot of publicity about that. And uh, at that particular time, uh, the, the man got in touch with me. I represented him, and he agreed to, um, to uh, surrender himself with me and the uh, Indianapolis police chief. So we went to a corner uh, in the black neighborhood of Indianapolis, stood there uh, in the evening, one of, uh, both of us thinking this was the dumbest thing we had ever done because somebody would come along and shoot us. Uh, we waited for a while. And then the man showed up, but unfortunately there was a fire, fire and a fire truck siren scared him away. So this reminded me of what Belli was trying to do. But where Belli was with the, I think the police chief or whoever it was, um, this man never showed up. 
So uh, Belli then was contacted by uh, Belli, and this is the uh, letter that he sent to him. And uh, Belli, in fact, and this is one of the, uh, oh, the really disturbing parts of his life. He never shared this, uh, this uh, uh, letter with the authority. And so he was very much criticized for that. Uh, there is a film, by the way, called Zodiac. Uh, Jake Geikendahl, I believe, is the uh, reporter uh, who is following the leads and so on and so forth that way. It's very, very well done. I went to the premiere of it. And um, uh, basically, they, they have Belli in there in terms of, uh, you know, what this letter and so on and so forth that way. But he was highly criticized for this. And, and to this day, by the way, uh, they have never been able to, uh, oh, there's been a lot of uh, supposition about who the Zodiac Killer was. But I believe, and I, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that anybody has ever, uh, they've ever been able to identify the, uh, the killer and arrest him and all of that. So uh, this is another famous case that, uh, that uh, Bill I had. The part I of him- I know, and he was played by Brian Cox. So exactly. Brian Cox was the actor who did that. And, it and was that just film was done by, I forgot the, uh, the director's name. It was uh, David Fincher. So Fincher who did a lot it of- It was excellent. Films. Uh, the other part of Belli's life that uh, you may not know a great deal about, although I know you're, you, you do your research as well and looked at the book and so on and so forth, uh, is his private life. <laughs> I'm only laughing because uh, I basically learned an awful lot about this by uh, being introduced to wife number six. Yes, that's six he had, six wives, five divorces. Nancy Ho Belli is the woman that I finally met along with my wife, uh, uh, not too long before she died. Belli, first of all, uh, was married to a couple of women that I don't know too much about, but then he was 65 years old and he married a woman named Leah Belli. And Leah came from aristocratic background, supposedly um, a Romanian king or queen or whatever it was. And uh, Belli uh, fell in love with her, uh, really a, a rambunctious uh, relationship to begin with. Finally, they got married. Uh, it was a lavish wedding. At, at, before that, he had married a New York, excuse me, a uh, San Francisco socialite and immediately took her to Hong Kong and had this huge wedding and so on and so forth, divorced her. That was a big deal. But then he found Leah. Well, if you ever want to know about a contentious uh, relationship, uh, you had two of the two huge egos uh, hitting, banging against each other because Le Leah loved the limelight. And you got Belli, who always wanted to be the center of attention. So both of them uh, were butting heads all the time. She accused him of this. He accused her of that. If you get to San Francisco, please uh, find where Belli lived, the mansion he had up on Broadway. It's at the end closest down to the, it's way up on a hill, and it's closest to the bay. And, and you can't get inside, I don't assume now. He doesn't own it anymore. But uh, it was a lavish... Uh, uh, mansion, and I was fortunate before he sued me and while we were doing the television series to be invited there. Uh, it was like a palace. It was like a king's palace. I think there were 27 bedrooms there. Oh, wow. people, people can look. I may be wrong about this, but you can see the description, read the description of the mansion because it's been up for sale. You might be able to find it, William, on the internet. Um, because it was been up for sale, and I think it was sold again and again and again for, for millions of dollars. But I was able to 
um, to, to visit that, uh, th that home of his, the mansion. And why it's interesting is that he obviously had well done rump rows one, two, three, and four uh, in that, uh, in that uh, mansion uh, with Leah. And uh, one of the things that happened, they got into such a fight at one point that there were actually shots fired by Leah in his direction. Uh, she didn't hit him, even though at that time he was rather robust. He had gained a lot of weight and things. But that was that was uh, uh, very interesting that that happened there. Uh, and, and, you know, and then talking about the dogs, when now it was time, finally they both had it and they decided to get a divorce. Uh, there was a huge... Uh, uh, battle over who was going to get what. And the main battle, frankly, wasn't too much about uh, money. It was about who got well done rump roast number four. Wow. And Belli at one, saw, at one point, this is all true, by the way. <laughs> I know it sounds like fiction, but it's all true. At one point, and I, I always laugh when I say this, at one point, he threatened to go ahead and go to the, the uh, or maybe she did. No, I think it was him to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and throw the dog into the San Francisco Bay. If, if one or the other didn't compromise on all of this, I don't know if they would have, but that made great headlines, you see, and that's, that's what they were really uh, interested in. So his private life was a mess then, and also Belli made millions and millions of dollars. I read, I think I went through the book again and saw that at one point he had made $700 million dollars now, this is money back then. So that would have been in the billions of dollars. And as he neared the end of his life, William, he didn't have anything. Five divorces, uh, all, the, all the, uh, the trips they took all over the world. He lectured all over the world. He had these fast cars. He had expensive cars, uh, the mansion. I mean, he had so many, um, you know, expenses and, and all that. He had uh, two kids that uh, really uh, caused an awful lot of problems to and an awful lot of money. One of them was Caesar. He named his son Caesar. How about that? And uh, he and Caesar, uh, you know, didn't get along very well. He took him to the office all the time. Uh, he and Caesar then ended up, uh, Caesar passed the bar in the state of California. Uh, they worked together for a while, but you can imagine the two egos then again clashed because Leah was uh, jealous of, of Caesar. And so that was a mess. And then when they got into contentious uh, uh, proceedings regarding who was going to get the money off certain cases and things like that, those cases got into the court. That cost Belli millions in terms of defending his right. Malia then, he loved her so much, uh, Leah's daughter. And um, they ended up, um, you know, being so close and everything else like that. But as, as he got to the end of his life, uh, Lee accused him of, of not giving her enough money and not sharing, um, you know, cases, case that he made, money that he made off cases and so on and so forth. So she sued him a few times. Oh, man. So those it cases stays in the family. So the litigiousness oh, was just part of the family. Caesar is still a, a PI, personal injury lawyer in Mill Valley. He's in California. He's still working. Uh, he he, uh, he, he uh, was able to overcome, I think, three times being disbarred oh. uh he ended up over in oakland at one point but he was disbarred then he got his license back and so on and so forth last time i heard of him he was actually in mexico practicing law down there 
but he may be in Mill Valley. I don't know. That's, That's another colorful possible. life. Yeah. Another but those two, you know, and, and Belli, the two kids, you know, they, they just were always battling each other because Belli, um, you know, he wasn't a great father. He was always running around with every woman that he possibly could. In fact, uh, there was no more of a woman chaser in Hollywood than Errol Flynn. The, uh, the, the motion picture star, if you want to read about him, there's a couple good books and so on and so forth. He had a different woman every night. And of course, when he came to San Francisco, he and Belli, you know, they found every woman they could possibly. Belli was, was attractive at that time. He later gained weight and everything, but he was attractive. Even when he got up in age, with you can see the silver hair there. And, and he was, a, I want to compare him to Dorothy Kilgallen in some ways, in terms of their allure to the female, uh, to females. Uh, Belli was not handsome in, in many ways. He was not beautiful. He was just, but he had the one thing that is attractive to so many women, power. He had power. And he was a character. He was, he was always getting in trouble. He was always doing this and that, but he had power. Dorothy Kilgallen, God bless her, and you can read about her in The Reporter and Knew Too Much and all the other books I've written uh, about this amazing woman. She wasn't really beautiful. If you watch her on What's My Line, she, she wasn't beautiful. Uh, she was, I don't know what you'd call her exactly. She was attractive, that's for sure, uh, and all of that, but she was powerful, the most powerful female voice in America. And I was talking to this screenwriter that I'm working with in L.A. about a script uh, for a television series or film about Dorothy. And we agreed that was her that was her allure. People were scared to death of of Dorothy Kilgallen because any column that she wrote in her newspaper about a play, if she if she, uh, you know, uh, any blemish in there, if she if she said it was awful, it closed the next day. If you were an actor, actress on Broadway or in the movies and she wrote a column, you know, about you that that uh, wasn't favorable, it, 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 it could close a career. It could end a career. Belli was the same way. If he went after somebody, you know, uh, in a personal injury suit or whatever it was, I mean, it, it really, you know, caused all sorts of problems with him. He had a couple of clients who committed suicide when he sued them. The power of these kinds of people, and that's one of the reasons, and I'll maybe talk about this a little bit more, but this is one of the reasons that when he arrived in Dallas uh, to become Jack Ruby's lawyer, and we could talk a little bit about that, Dorothy Kilgallen was also there. She was there. Belli uh, was at his trials. So everything that I've talked about, I knew the man who was at those trials and at the Ruby trial and all of that. That gives me the credibility to talk about it. I, was, I knew about Dorothy Kilgallen being at the Jack Ruby trial. All of these other law uh, authors and so-called experts and TV critics and all these people, extremist people on the right who want to talk about the Jack Ruby trial and the and the uh, JFK assassination, they weren't there. Okay, I wasn't there. Dorothy Kilgallen was there. And so- She was having lunch with him, right? She was having well, lunch with Belli. Well, that's she why she, say, that's why she kind of um, comforted up to Belli. Because I think she knew in her mind, and I think there's no question she was right. The whole JFK assassination is not about Lee Harvey Oswald. It's about Jack Ruby. You need Jack Ruby to open the door to everything. And so she knew that, that uh, uh, Melvin Belli and Joe Tonahill represented Ruby. And the first thing she did when she got to Dallas was to cozy up to Belli. One of the reasons I think he cozied up to her is because, you know, he found her attractive and probably wanted to get in bed with her. 
But as the trial went on, she had the inside information about everything that was happening. In fact, J. Edgar Hoover was furious about the relationship that uh, Melvin Belli had with Dorothy Kilgallen uh, and wrote about it, as a matter of fact, in some of his handwritings and everything that way. So it was these two powerful people that ended up getting together. And I hadn't really thought about that as much until recently uh, when we decided to do this podcast, because uh, that was a connection that I hadn't really uh, focused on as much as I probably should have in my books. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it is remarkable that he was involved in this case and not really a criminal defense guy. Like, Yeah, let's, let's talk doing, about yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that office uh, was part of the uh, Greyhound bus tour in San Francisco. And people would come by them, they'd let them out, and they would look down there. He'd wave at them, you know, everything else oh, that way. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that part. I can see if there was anything. Well, I used to drive by there when I was a kid, so I would look into the office. It had windows. You could see the skeleton. You know, oh, it was yeah. kind of like just a known site. It was like on the tour of San Francisco. It was just one of those places. Like, you knew let, Let's talk about him as a journalist before I forget. Uh, on, on, uh, on, on one of the pages starting at the book, uh, Down for the Count, and in the one that's on Amazon, the, the paperback, I listed his books. Uh, I think at the last count, there were 75 before he died. 75 books, mostly all about the law, personal injury law, your everything. He wrote one called Modern Trials, which is about this thick. It is still a classic today. Many law schools, and just think about this, I think it was uh, written in probably, oh, 56, 1956, 7, 8, somewhere in there. They still require law students to read that book. He was famous for what was called demonstrative evidence. And that was, you know, the skeleton, Elmer. Belli would take these, um, these charts, uh, these uh, models of buildings and, and houses. And if, if he was suing a pharmaceutical company, he would have a, a, a pictorial of the inside of where the research was done and things like that. Uh, he, he was flamboyant in that way, but it really helped juries understand those cases. And that's why he was able to get, he got the first million dollar verdicts anybody ever got in this country because he was in there. And of course he was always up, you know, screaming and yelling and all of the uh, denial of justice for his clients and everything else like that. But it was demonstrative evidence and Melvin, Melvin, Melvin um, a book, uh, Modern Trials is still a classic today. So he was also famous for those things. And I admire him for doing that. He started, basically the Association of American Trial Lawyers, which uh, these people today, all of the lawyers belong to that organization, go to conferences every year. I went to one and met some of the lawyers there. I interviewed all of the members of his law firm that were still alive and the stories that they told and so on and so forth. Many, many were critical of him. Most though applauded what he had done for the legal profession. So I wanna make sure that we give him credit that way. So. The question, let's address this in our investigation. How did the king of torts end up being Jack Ruby's lawyer? For those people who are too young to remember, uh, John F. Kennedy was, a, and, I, and I'm going to say this because there are some who don't even know who John Kennedy is, frankly, unfortunately. History is not as important to young people these days. They have that smartphone plugged to their nose and, and it, it, history isn't important to them. But we learn from history. John F. Kennedy was the 35th president of the United States. He was killed in Dallas in 1963. Uh, immediately, they arrested a guy named Lee Harvey Oswald. 
uh, a day, I guess it's two days later, he was shot and killed by Melvin, uh, by uh, Jack Ruby, uh, owned Jacob the Club in, yeah. in, uh, in Dallas. And uh, they arrested uh, Ruby. And, and at the beginning of that particular case, when he was arrested, a, a guy named Tom Howard, who was a Dallas attorney of some repute, was hired by some people, the Ruby family, to represent Jack Ruby. A lot of people don't know that. And he took that case and was going to try to work out something for Jack Ruby, who had killed at that particular time the most hated person in the universe, Lee Harvey Oswald. That case could have easily been plea bargained. Jack Ruby could have probably gotten probation, for God's sakes, you know, probation, or at least a couple times in the in 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 prison, a couple of years in prison for what he did. But but. Uh, those involved with Ruby also decided, no, we don't want to do this. We want the best we can possibly find. So we, they brought in a guy named Melvin Belli. He was the king of torts. In his autobiographies, there are two or three or four or five different versions of how Belli became the lawyer for Jack Ruby. One of them that seems to have the most credibility, in my opinion, is that Belli was trying a criminal case down in Los Angeles. He had a, an, an office down there. He was try, trying a personal injury case. And supposedly Jack Ruby's brother, whose name I can't recall, went down to Los Angeles. Earl. His name's Earl. 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 Yeah, Earl. Walked into the courtroom, saw Bell Eye in action and said to himself, uh, this is the man who should represent my brother. Well, it's credible, but probably hogwash. It probably wasn't what happened exactly because Belli had this affiliation with the mafia. Uh, his main client, and you mentioned this earlier, was a guy named Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was a very dangerous gangster in Los Angeles. Uh, the FBI, FBI called him the most dangerous gangster in America. He was quite a character himself, a little short, uh, short guy uh, with a kind of a nasty looking face, but um, responsible for several killings in Los Angeles and across the country. Well, he was Belli's main client. Belli represented him in two or three different cases. Unfortunately, one of them wasn't successful, and Mickey Cohen ended up in, in San Quentin at one point. But Belli, uh, you know, knew Mickey Cohen. And what I did in, in, in my research with the assassinations is once I figured out that uh, Joe Kennedy and, and had fixed the 1960 election, and that in doing so, he had used members of the mafia to help them win West Virginia and, and uh, Illinois uh, because they were going to lose the election uh, to Richard Nixon. I saw that particular connection between Joe Kennedy and the mafia. And so when I was working on Belli's book, I thought, wait, uh, Joe Kennedy was involved with the mafia. Belli's involved with the mafia. Could there be a connection between Belli becoming Jack Ruby's lawyer and his mafia affiliation? And that's the road that I went down, and that's the road that, that, that Dorothy Kilgallen went down. So what happened is that Belli went to uh, Dallas. Uh, he ended up uh, having a, a big uh, news conference. He loved news conferences. You'll see one with Dorothy Kilgallen and, uh, and, and Melvin Belli at the uh, website, the, the uh, uh, DorothyKilgallenStory.org, the DorothyKilgallenStory.org. Maybe you can give people that link because there's all kinds of things up there about Dorothy, her mysterious death in 1965 and all of that. But there she is sitting right beside uh, Melvin Belli and Joe Tonahill because, as I say, she had cozied up to Belli.
So what did he do? Well, Belli, I believe, was brought in uh, before, listen, before Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Why do I believe that? Because I had a primary witness, uh, a, a good friend of Belli's, can't think of his name right now, and the day that Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald, they were, there it is, good. Uh, that's Belli on the left, obviously. The day that Lee Harvey Oswald was shot by Jack Ruby, they were having lunch down at Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. And a, and a, uh, a, a waiter came up and said, boy, you'll never guess. Uh, somebody just shot uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, a guy named Ruby. And Belli said, and I believe it was, this was a, a very credible account, said, well, if, Ru if, if Oswald's uh, dead, I'll have to represent Jack Ruby. That made me know that Belli knew about the assassination before it happened and that he was ready to defend whoever it was that was uh, contacted, uh, that was arrested for the killing of JFK. So, so what, ha what happened then? Well, I believe that he was brought in to be Jack Ruby's lawyer by, through his contact, Mickey Cohen. And that stretched then to uh, to New Orleans, where Carlos Marcello, one of the gangsters that was uh, double-crossed by Joe Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy after, uh, after uh, uh, JFK became president, uh, they promised they would leave the mafia alone. Immediately, they appointed, Bob, uh, Joe, appointed Bobby Kennedy attorney general, and, and Bobby Kennedy went after Marcello and some of the other mafioso. I, I established links between um, uh, Mickey Cohen and Carlos Marcello, and Marcello then, Dorothy believed, and, and I believe I've proved in my books, especially uh, uh, collateral damage and fighting for justice, that uh, Marcello is the one who uh, orchestrated the JFK assassination, and then it was covered up by, by uh, J. Edgar Hoover with the corruption at the Warren Commission that I have in fighting for justice. So I connected that all through. So if you look at that, here's what Dorothy thought. This was a mob hit just as easy as pie, if, if you use common sense logic. Lee Harvey Oswald is a patsy, no question about it. Somehow or another, he's involved in the assassination, but he's captured. Now, what are we gonna do with him? Loose lips. There's a connection from him to Carlos Marcello. That can't happen. What do you do? You bring in this mafioso, um, Jack Ruby in Dallas, and at the same time, you make contact with Melvin Belli to be on call in case there's, he's needed in the Ruby case. And Ruby then shoots Oswald. That closes Oswald's uh, mouth. And then Ruby is uh, arrested and is going to go on trial. And you bring in Melvin Belli. And this is where I have such disgust with this man for what he did. Any lawyer must take on the responsibilities of defending their client to the best of their ability. Belli had two marching orders. Number one, he was not going to let Ruby testify because they couldn't let Ruby talk about his connection to Marcello and everything else going on. And number two, he needed to make Ruby look crazy. So he came up with this ludicrous psychomotor epilepsy insanity defense that Ruby was basically insane at the time he shot, uh, he shot Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, he paraded that around uh, during during the trial, and then that was what the jury heard. And and I was, you know, I, Dorothy knew it, it, that was it just was never going to work. And of course, what happened? Jack Ruby was uh, was uh, given was uh, was um, convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment 
uh, even even the uh, death penalty at that particular time. So, you know, it's amazing because if you think about it, talk about miscarriage of justice, which I used as a as a, a title for a book about the spy Jonathan Pollard, miscarriage of justice, because as I said, if Melvin Belli had never entered this case, a tort lawyer, it's the same situation, William, as you remember, Don King, the promoter, brought in a, a tax lawyer to represent Mike Tyson. Nobody even knew who he was in Indianapolis to represent Tyson in a rape case. Well, the same thing happened here. You brought in a tort lawyer, a personal injury lawyer to a represent- civil lawyer, civil lawyer. Yeah, civil to lawyer. Never tried a criminal case like this, a capital case or anything like that. And so you just, you just in this situation, I'm Ruby got a real raw deal here. That case could have been plea bargained and he ended up uh, getting the death penalty. So um, I, I have discussed for Belli doing that. He, he had such an ego. Maybe he thought he could win the case. I don't know. But his main uh, order from those who, who had hired him basically and paid him was to keep Ruby's mouth shut and make him look crazy. Right. And there were allegations that he was just getting a flat fee to, to represent Ruby, like a significant amount of money. You talk about somebody in Vegas saying one of our guys got busted, go out and do it. So there's definitely some mob ties there. It's an interesting tie, too, between Belli and Earl Warren. They knew each other as well from the early days. So it's weird that he's involved in Ruby and then Warren, you know, becomes the head of the Warren Commission. It's uh, they must, They had to have known each other because they were at same kind of conventions in California. That's where Warren's from, by the way. Well, hope, what we hope to portray in the movie is really what happened in the early 60s. The film will really start, I believe, with the 1960 election and go through Dorothy Kilgallen's death in 65. But just think about it. Uh, you had the deaths of, uh, of, of uh, JFK. You had Marilyn, okay, uh, who did not commit suicide, by the way. Dorothy had proven that she uh, was murdered by uh, uh, with uh, Robert F. Kennedy, who had a love affair with him for her all that summer, uh, complicit in her death. Had Marilyn Monroe in 62, JFK in 63, uh, Dorothy in 65, and Martin Luther King fits in there someplace. You had all of these uh, these deaths, and, and they're all in many ways connected. Even Martin Luther King uh, with, with what happened. Uh, uh, all, yeah, all, don't all forget RFK. Things. Don't forget RFK, too. Well, and that's in 68. So what we hope to show is what, what happened in those uh, turbulent early 60s. Um, that is connected between all of those uh, deaths. Uh, you know, JFK should have never died. Marilyn Monroe should have never died. Uh, Martin Luther King should have never died. Dorothy Kilgallen for sure should have never died. And and you can make up your own mind about Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> Many people uh, aren't fans That's of his, and especially his his uh, son who's going to run for president, who just basically is, is a bold-faced liar in terms of what he said about who killed JFK because I was I had two interviews with him and he both the times he said he knew it was the mafia and so on and so forth. Now he's all into this CIA stuff and everything else. So I don't have much respect for, for our RFK Jr. and none for his father. But, you know, Dorothy is kind of at the central of all of that, if you think about it. She's kind of the, 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 the you know, the, the, the connection between everybody. And I hope we'll be able to show that in a film or a television series. I hope so, too. And there's other strange deaths in the 60s. Like you did a book on Thomas Merton. I've had people on about the strange death of Thomas Merton. Like oh, Merton yeah. died. Yeah, like he he was an anti-war kind of crusader, suspiciously found with a, a land, like a fan over his body. Like it didn't make sense. That's all another. Well, as you story. know, I, I, 
I wrote a book about him called Beneath the, Mask, the, excuse me, Beneath the Mask of Holiness about Thomas Merton, who I learned about in seminary when I uh, studied theology uh, at one particular point in my life. And I wrote a book about him and his love affair with a student nurse half his age. Uh, I was criticized and still am today for, you know, exposing the human side of uh, uh, Thomas Merton, who I have great respect for. And his book, uh, New Seeds of Contemplation, has become, become kind of my Bible. I mean, he was a spiritual man, and I loved, I really love him. But uh, at the end of his life, I believe he was going to uh, leave uh, Bangkok, where he went to speak and come back to the United States, and perhaps even get more involved with uh, Margie, the, the nurse. But also, there were those in the Catholic Church who were, were worried about, you know, they used to basically keep him in prison at the uh, at the uh, at Gethsemane, the uh, seminary there, and seminary, and keep him there so he couldn't talk about anything. Uh, but he was out of there now, and I think they were worried about what he was going to say with the Catholic Church. He, he he really believed in all the religions and the connection between the Eastern religions and Western. Well, that was a no-no for the Catholics. And then all of a sudden, the news comes from Bangkok that he supposedly is showering. He walks out and touches an electric fan and and dies and is and is dead. And I do have to uh, applaud, uh, there's, I think, two or three authors, but one in especially that you may have had on that has looked into that death. And, uh, and it, it just makes no sense that that's what would have happened to, to Thomas Merton, correct? Yeah, correct. And he has a lot in common with MLK, both very anti-war, stridently anti-war. So oh, it yes. uh, makes, makes a lot of sense somebody would have an incentive to and and a conscientious kind of uh, loudmouth like he was, and he was a very he was a very normal person before he entered seminary too. So he gave up a lot of stuff to enter seminary, but he he, he had an eye for the ladies. I think that's fair to say, much like Belli, right? So Belli, well, you know, with with Thomas Merton, he was looking for love his whole life, and and he had never been able to find it, and then he ended up in in you know being a Catholic monk, and and there wasn't a lot of. Uh, a chance for love at, at Gethsemane, uh, you know, in 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 uh, in Kentucky, and then he go he has a bad back. He goes into the hospital. He meets this nurse, and he absolutely no question about it. My be I, I don't mind being criticized for my books. I'm very controversial in what I do, but I find primary source material, and about half of that book is based on Thomas Merton's journal, and he talks about Margie in there, and how much he cared about her and everything else, and. And yet, boy, uh, you know, it's happened a couple times to me. The moment that book was released on Amazon, if you go look at uh, Beneath the Mask of Holiness, my book, the, the first, I don't know, 10, 12 uh, um, uh, reviews of that book are, it's garbage. Uh, I mean, I'm the worst writer who ever lived. How dare I do what I did? I mean, it was just awful. They really condemned me. And it was unfortunate because I think it's, I think it's the best book written about uh, Thomas Merton, in terms of really getting a, f a feel for him, who was the uh, the famous uh, folk sing folk singer back there? Uh, uh, that uh, Bob Dylan, uh, folk woman. singer, uh, Not, woman, jo June Baez, Joan Baez, Joan Baez. Um, he and Joan Baez were very, very close friends. You you talked about his uh, demonstrations and so on and so forth, and conscientious objector type type things. Um, when I gave a, a speech in uh, in Ohio, I learned that she was uh, uh, performing there. We got tickets, we went, and we sat down with her, and I interviewed her for for the book. And she she told me he was madly in love with uh, with Margie. I don't know why people want to hide that. 
So, uh, you know, anyway, that, that book, uh, you know, Thomas it was the Seven Story Mountain, which was super influential right around that time when he died. Oh, too. I'll tell you like what. Everybody that was reading the, that in the 60s, right? That is the biggest fraud in the world. You know why it is? No. Because the Catholic Church was able to edit the book, hmm. edit the book, and took out so much material in there. And, and you know, uh, it, it's, it's really a sin that that book is still around. I've condemned it. Other people have condemned it and so on and so forth. But for whatever reason, it's still popular. And uh, I, I just it, it really objectionable to that kind of a book being put out that is far from the truth about what Thomas Merton was all about. Hmm. Interesting. I never heard that. that I should have had Melvin Belli to sue him. That's what I should have. Yeah, done. there you go. You have to resurrect him. It's still a bestseller. That oh, I know. It is. It, yeah. Why did you have to bring that up? OK, sorry. Let's move on. Let's I'm get back to Belli. Let's get uh, back to Belli and his woman like his first wife was what this the daughter of his law professor valentine like that was a big book too was it valentine's evidence or valentine's i forgot what it was but she and the kids all changed their names right so he had like four kids who took on the valentine last name like she was super uh, my bet is that he probably had 25 kids <laughs> really but man, man, oh my gosh i mean if you if you really look into his life i mean wherever he traveled around the world, he always had a, a woman that he could, you know, uh, uh, that he could charm. He was a char, he had a charming way about him. You know, he really did. Even after he sued me. Uh, and I, I think well, he I turned it right. He's like, yeah, let's go to the park. You know, I sued you. Yeah, let's, let's go to the, uh, let's go to the ballpark in his gold Rolls Royce and all of that. And, you know, so I, I can't, I can't uh, say that, uh, I have any hatred for the man because I don't let hate get into my life, but, uh, what he did in the Ruby trial was reprehensible and he tried to make up for it afterwards. He wanted to, I give him that credit, but they fired him. Earl Ruby fired him and they got, um, boy, I don't know who the appellate lawyer was. I think it might've been racehorse Haynes, but anybody got a lawyer. And, um, one of the, the things that people don't know is that the prosecutor in Ruby's case finally decided they were going to commute the death sentence. And he has gone on record as the prosecutor. Another of the prosecutors have said is that that case, probably should have been tried again. And they were going to try it again because it the, the verdict was reversed by the Texas Supreme Court because of problems with publicity in Dallas. And they had moved the case actually to a, to a smaller town in Oklahoma across the border. But of course, Jack Ruby ended up uh, uh, getting cancer. And that's always been a kind of a question mark. Did he really have cancer or not? But he died before there could be a new trial. Right, but that was one of the issues in the original trial was like a change of venue motion, right? Because oh yeah, they, they, they did file like that, but uh, uh, that judge here again, see uh, that judge uh, Joe, uh, boy, Brown? Joe, what? Yeah, Brown? Joe Brown. He wasn't gonna let he wasn't gonna get let that case go. Yeah, it could have been a change of venue, and he'd have been the judge. But back in those days, the the, the, the judge usually followed the location where the trial was going to be. And he wasn't going to let that case go, and he was he was very um, prejudicial uh, towards uh, towards Jack Ruby. Uh, you know, uh, the the assistant prosecutor Bill Alexander and I had many conversations with him. Uh, he always carried a gun in the courtroom. Just we had so many enemies, uh, but he told me, you know, that that uh, Ruby didn't get a fair shake, and in his his opinion, um, you know, that the, the, the trial should have been moved and so on and so forth that way. But it was too late to do that. 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible. Just that he's there is, is just says something. But we are at the one hour mark. Is there anything, anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap this up, Mark? I think I've talked enough, William. People are probably sick of me talking too There's much. There's a lot more in this book. You mentioned William J. Bryan Jr. is in here. There's all kinds of uh, interesting characters who intersected with Bella. I didn't know the Errol Flynn story. That's what led to the death or the end of his first marriage, probably. Was just well, the first time he marriage. defended Errol Flynn, we'll just close with this, was that Errol really believed that this uh, girl that he was with was older than 16 years old. Uh, but she wasn't. So uh, to the rescue came Belli, and somehow or another, you know, he was able to uh, save Errol Flynn. But uh, swashbuckler, you know that old term? That's, that's what Belli was. That's what Errol Flynn was. They, they were bigger than life characters, you know. And, uh, you know, oh, oh, wait a minute. We, we got to mention this. Do you mind one more thing? Yeah, sure. Many times when I've talked about Melvin Belli, people say, well, I remember him. He was on Star Trek. There you go. And he was. He played, oh, gosh, I can't remember, like a count or something. Caesar Belli was, is his son. And you, you can find that episode. Oh, I, I can't remember exactly the title of the episode, but maybe you can find it. Melvin Belli, Star Trek. And, there it is. Uh, yeah, okay. Let's pull it. Let's see if we can get it to roll here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, many people remember him best for that, that that was the – uh, where they where they saw him? Uh, let's see. Let's see. This is fine. Let me let me turn off. My yeah, there he is. There he is, right there. He's an angel. That's that's an interesting. Uh, uh, you my know. Audio done. Okay, there we go. Uh, go. Okay, here we go. Ready? Here we go. I can't hear him. Can you hear him? Avenging Angel, that's what he is. <laughs> anyway. Is that his real voice? Oh, yeah. I, well, I, no, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Sound like, it sounds like Avenging he's been Angel. That, yeah. That's what he was. Yeah, people can go look at that. But a lot of people remember him for that. He was quite the character, that's for sure. And the children shall lead. That's the episode. Ah, so, yes. <clears throat> so people check out this book. There's a lot more information about this guy. It's very interesting. I don't even know how he got into law school. Actually, he said he wasn't a very good student undergraduate, but somehow he ended up at Bolt, which is just uh, like me. Just like me, William. If you remember, you're the one that's the smart guy, Cal or no, Bert, Cal Berkeley. I I Berkeley yeah, I went to Berkeley undergrad. I didn't. Yeah, I'm intimidated by that. I should tell you, very intimidated by that. It was interesting. It was good times. I like Berkeley. Those are very good memories. Uh, again, Mark Shaw, many books. Go check them out. How many books are you at right now? 20, 22? Oh, almost 30. It's markshawbooks.com. You can yeah. see them all up there. And, and the podcast or the uh, interviews with uh, and presentations about all the books are up on YouTube and all of that. I'm a very blessed man, that's for sure. And thank you, William, for, for having you. me on the program. Again. Thank you. It's great to talk with you again. And congrats on this book written a long time. I was still relevant. A lot of really great information in here. Title again is Melvin Belli, King of the Courtroom with author Mark Shaw. Thanks so much for your time.